Thank you, Wayne, uh, for inviting me uh, to give this presentation today. Um, every scholar, in some ways, has a, a kind of dream project or pet project, something you really want to do if you have enough security. You don't worry about salary, promotion, or anything else. And I'm in a kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm in this phase of some say midlife crisis. What do you want to do with your life? I really want to do something different, something I really like, uh, aside from making a living as a sociologist, something I think uh, to my heart. And that project um, was inspired by a letter from artist David Duncan in the letter in 1996. This is what he said in the letter. In the little thinking I do these days about the old battles I fought, it has, come, it has increasingly seemed to me that when our two or three cardinal problems that social science, because this is social science, not by sociology, has not yet come to grips with is precisely this issue of heterogeneity. In my letter to him, I was talking about heterogeneity. And this is his reply. The ubiquity of heterogeneity means that for the most part, we substitute actuarial prob probabilities, which we do very well as demographers and statisticians, for the, for the true individual probabilities. And therefore, we generate mainly descriptively accurate, but theoretically empty and prognostically useless statistics. And that was a year I was promoted to full professor at University of Michigan. That was really harsh on me. It was really, really hard to take. And all I did was useless statistics. So now, after 11, 12 years of receiving this letter, I finally come back and address the issue that Dudley raised in 1996. Actually, I think the whole discipline including economics and political science and sociology and demography, all now dealing with this issue of heterogeneity. We, we may never find a solution to the problem of heterogeneity. At least we're working towards a better understanding of individual level heterogeneity. So a general theme of this larger project is the following. I have launched a methodological project called Three Principles in Social Science. Again, I want to be engaged in a dialogue in social science, not just sociology. And this is called Three Principles. And there are three principles I want to advocate in this work. And since this is the first time I visit Oxford, I'm going to give you one of the first principles. You have to remind me back to get the other two. So I, I reserve the other two for later talks. So today, I'm going to give you the first one. It's called a variability principle. In this principle, I state variability is the very essence of social science research. And it's a bold statement many people don't like. And many of my economics friends don't like because some of them still believe there is kind of universality in social science uh, 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 laws or, or, or theorems and so on. I don't think such theorems 
exist in quantitative terms, certain theorems exist in terms of qualitative relationship and not quantitative relationship. And what do I mean by this first principle? We're interested, we social scientists, are interested in understanding how social outcomes vary across members in the population. We're all different. Individuals are all different. Different teachers are all different. Different scholars are different. Or families are different. We're interested in how a particular social outcome differs or varies across members in the human population. And over time, it's not constant. I'm happy today. Maybe it's good weather and good campus and good audience, but I may not be so happy tomorrow if uh, I'm calling traffic jam or for whatever reason. So that we actually differ across individuals, but also over time, things are never fixed in, in the population. So in recent years, my work has been on the theme of heterogeneity. Uh, you may have read my paper with Jenny Brandt, uh, 2010, on heterogeneous treatment effects of college education. That is uh, one example. Uh, but today, I'm going to give you another example of a study of interest, my methodological work on heterogeneity. So today is a piece of that, that project. And uh, the topic and methods are different from what I usually do in other papers on the same theme. So topic is new one to me. It's not new to sociology. It's an old topic in sociology, but it's a new one to me. It's on racial segregation, residential segregation. Method is also new to me. It's the first time I use microsimulation or agent-based modeling. I'll have another paper on marriage using the same method and coming to similar conclusions, but uh, this is just, uh, uh, relatively speaking, uh, this is a new area for me, methodologically a new method for me. Let me begin with Schilling's model of segregation. Thomas Schilling wrote a remarkable paper and also a book that elaborates the, the basic theme. And that's what he found. Severe racial segregation at the societal level can result from individuals' choices based on mild racial preferences. So in the population, people have very, very slight preference of, of for racial neighbors. You don't want to be minority. So all he assumed was that individuals do not want to be in the neighborhood in which they are below their race is below 50%. It's very mild preference. You don't want to be a minority. You're uncomfortable to be a minority. That's all. You don't want to be a minority below 50%. That's all. And from that assumption, from that assumption, nobody wants to be 50%. And he came to important insights, two important insights. First is that when an individual moves from one neighborhood to another neighborhood, it changes the composition, racial composition of the neighborhood of your origin, where you move from, as well as the racial composition of the destination where you move to. It changes. If you're black, you, 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 if you move, you make the neighborhood you leave behind less black, and then the neighborhood you move to more black slightly. But, but your, the changes that are caused by the move will affect other people. 
because it changes composition, composition would affect other people's uh, moves. So it comes to the second important insight. Accumulation of many, many such micro-level moves by individuals leads to dramatic social outcomes, such as segregation, through dynamics. So you have accumulation of micro-processes that leads to large-scale social phenomena. And this is what I call, this first is called feedback, I call feedback, second I call micro-macro interaction. There is a micro-macro interaction through dynamics. So those are the two important insights that gives justification in some ways why we need to do agent-based modeling. Whenever there is a move, a, a behavior at the individual level, there is a feedback because you change the environment and, and many, when many people make such moves, accumulation of micro-level phenomena leads to dramatic social outcomes. I use Karl Marx, actually, I'm more or less, uh, I was raised in communist China, and in some ways I'm still Marxist, so I'll give you this quote from Marx. Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. So individuals make their moves, but they do not move, make decisions as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances. They move, not because they, 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 they can direct where they want to move, but under circumstances existing already, under the circumstances of other people's moves before you, given and transmitted from the past. So your migration behavior, where you want to live, in some ways is determined, affected by where other people have settled down where other people have lived, have, have moved, so on. So that is the dynamics that Marx understood and that we are beginning to understand. In 2006, Elizabeth Brooke and Ron Mayer published a paper in AGS that adds a more realistic component to the Schilling model of segregation. Remember that Schilling's model assumed a dichotomous preference. You do not want to be a minority. You don't want to be minority below 50% at, in any neighborhood. That's all. Zero one, probably zero one, over a threshold of 0.5. That was all. But Broker and Mayer added a more realistic, realistic component by Respecifying the preference function for neighborhood. They say neighborhood preference is not a sudden step function of racial composition at 0.5, but a gradual function of racial composition. So it seems like a step function, a sharp threshold function at 0.5 is a too strong assumption. So this is a, what um, uh, Schilling's choice model, preference function. You could have uh, less drastic, you could have kind of step, uh, a step function, you could have a continuous, but more or less linear, you could have a kind of a increasing, but continuous function. So they considered all those specifications for preference, what kind of a preference you would like to have. After they considered alternative specifications of preference, Brooke and Mayer used the survey data, specifically Detroit area studies where I lived, uh, 1976 and 1992, 
and multi-city study of urban inequality in Maksui, they used the survey data. I'm going to show you what the instrument they used. The result of the analysis is as follows. Is as follows. Neither the Milnet data from the 1976 and 1992 Detroit area studies, nor the Maksui ideal neighborhood data provide evidence for a threshold response function. This is what I'm going to focus on. They say the survey data do not support Schilling models of threshold function. Rather, our estimates are all consistent with a nonlinear continuous function, the last function. What do they mean when they say nonlinear continuous function? I'm going to come back to, to that. That's a central point of the, our paper. Now let's go back to agent-based modeling of uh, Brooke and Mayer. They specify they, they created a hypothetical city of a grid with 500 by 500 uh, matrix. They assumed 50% vacancies. Um, they assumed the two ethnic groups of equal size, say, say blacks and whites. They also allowed a random initiation move, and that we could modify. We did modify, even though we're, we're not incorporating that analysis into this paper. And then this is what their survey data allowed them to do. Destination probability, that's where you want to move, which neighborhood you're moving to, to depends on racial composition of the neighborhood and the preference function. How, how, how much you like to live in the neighborhood and then the neighborhood's uh, composition. And the last piece is the uh, most important innovation. A substantive conclusion of Brooke and Mayer uh, is, is that you, the use of continuous pre preference function seems to matter. How? Segregation, long-term segregation is lower under the continuous function than under the threshold function of Schiller. So they concluded that the use of a continuous function, preference function, leads to long-term lower level segregation than would be predicted under the Schilling model. And then there is a subsequent debate in AGS 2009. I'm not going to cover that because it's not really uh, germane to my discussion. Um, and this is the um, different uh, threshold. This is a threshold function. This is a continuous function. Now let's take a look at the core argument. The Brook-Mir agent-based model assumes a representative agent. So they assumed they are agents. They all behave similarly. They have the same kind of behavior. They have the same decision-making calculation. This amounts to a homogeneity assumption. All agents in the population act exactly the same way given the, the same circumstances. Of course, what differs, there is difference in their circumstances. So all agents are situated in different neighborhoods. It is a variability in racial composition of these neighborhoods they live in that makes them different from each other. So this is the uh, important homogeneity assumption, homogeneity at a micro level, how you will behave given the input. 
input differs from in one individual than another individual. You, you could ask questions if I'm going too fast. So that is uh, a basic core argument of the Brooke-Mayer model. So same preference function is applied to all persons in the race. So given, given the earlier chart, what does this mean? Let's take this as an example. So you would prefer a neighborhood with higher concentration of your own race, whites. They prefer a neighborhood with more whites. And that preference goes up sharply as the proportion of whites goes up. So that preference function applies to all individuals. So if you are this, if you when you move, you move towards your likelihood of moving to the neighborhood increases sharply as the percentage of whites in the neighborhood increases. And all individuals will respond the same way, but they may respond differently because they might face different neighborhood uh, uh, choices. Why homogeneity assumption? To me, that is not reasonable or problematic. It is not realistic. Indeed, it was known for a long time in segregation literature to be untrue by researchers studying racial segregation. I'll give you two examples. One was from Schelling. Schelling model, his micro-level agent-based model was based on homogeneous agent. That was true. He, he only had two races and all racial groups behave the same way. There's no heterogeneity in the model. But in his theoretical discussion, he did discuss heterogeneity. He called it tolerance schedule. So this is drawn from, from his work. He assumed that for whites, 100% will be happy to live other, with other whites. This is the ratio of blacks to whites in the neighborhood. So this is an all-white neighborhood and everybody is happy. But if there are two to one ratio in the neighborhood, he assumes that no white will be comfortable living in the neighborhood of where the ratio of blacks to whites is two to one. So it goes to zero. So the, the proportion of whites who are tolerant of a neighborhood increases linearly uh, negatively with, uh, with the proportion of blacks to, uh, relative to whites. So this is his theoretical discussion. My colleague Ren Farley and his colleagues from Detroit Area Studies actually estimated function like this. Um, let me give you the conclusion from Farley and all study. It's a very good uh, paper. This is what they said. There is a good deal of variation in the neighborhood preferences of the white respondents. So this is about heterogeneity. Why the majority of whites will not remain in a neighborhood that is mostly black, there are many whites who are willing to tolerate some representation of blacks in their neighborhoods. So this is a first time uh, empirical evidence on uh, heterogeneous preferences of, of whites. So let me go back to uh, the preference data that Broca and Mayer used in their AJS article. This is the instrument that was devised by my colleague Ren Farley in the Detroit area study and then later in Matsui study. 
Respondents, all respondents, were presented with five hypothetical neighborhoods. You live here, and everything else is satis- to your satisfaction. Everything else, like transportation, housing quality, and everything else is to your satisfaction. Except here, you're surrounded. If you're white, you're surrounded by all whites. There was 14 of them. Here, surrounded by 13 white white families and one black family. Then you have three. Then you have uh, five. Then you have uh, 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 seven. So gradually, the increase the proportion of black neighborhoods around you in this kind of micro uh, level of neighborhood. They ask you how, whether you're willing to move to such a neighbor, neighborhood. Okay, so that is the instrument. And let's look at the data. I'm using more recent data, Matsui data, in four cities. This is Detroit, Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Boston. This is type 1, type 2, type 3, type 4, type 5. This is the proportion of blacks increases from 0% to uh, 57%. And Detroit, I'm using Detroit because they use Detroit data. I'm going to simulate using Detroit data. As you can see, this is very similar to Schilling's preference function. That is, the lower, the higher the white population percentage, the higher, the more likely they are happy with the neighborhood. It's almost one. Not quite one, but it's close to one. And as you increase the proportion of blacks in the neighborhood, the tolerance of neighborhood goes down, right? So we see that. And that is a pattern, that is a pattern that Brooke and Mayer used for their kind of continuous uh, nonlinear function because they showed that as uh, proportion of blacks increases, uh, tolerance of neighborhood goes down. Or vice versa, as the proportion of whites goes up, then tolerance goes up. And, and if you compare four cities, tolerance uh, for blacks is low in Detroit and is relatively high in, in Los Angeles. And that's a substantive issue. Yes? Yes, that's, that, is, that is one interpretation. I'm going to give you our interpretation, but uh, uh, that's exactly uh, part of the uh, problem we are dealing with. That's right. That's right. And they used, they assumed homogeneous population and used a logic model to to, mod, to uh, predict probabilities of joint, treating them as separate outcomes uh, in the joint uh, uh, distribution, probability distribution. And we think it's not necessarily the best way of using the data. So I'm going to introduce a kind of heterogeneous model for the, for the same data. So how do we interpret? I think you just asked a good question. So how should we interpret the data? There are infinite number of possibilities of interpreting the data. And I'll just give you two extremes. Brooke Mayer's perspective is that there is a homogeneous continuous function applicable to all person. So for any person, if the proportion of whites increases, your probability of that destination increases. But it's the same pattern that applies to all. That's their interpretation. But our alternative perspective is heterogeneous interpretation, is that 
you have heterogeneous population, each of them may have a distinct threshold. And the two are not distinguishable. So another part, let me just give you another statement of our interpretation. So imagine, this, this thing actually was discussed in my 2007 article on Duncan uh, that was published in uh, um, uh, Social and Stratification uh, Journal. Um, in, in memory of Duncan. And in, in that paper, I discussed a uh, 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 latent class model that was discussed by Duncan. I gave the numerical illustration that, that he covered. But the same problem applies here. One example is dichotomous. Say, I'm talking about the, uh, uh, Democrats. You have, you know, 50% in the survey are supportive of, of Obama or Democrats. And you have two interpretations. One just said, if you take any American, they have 50% of chance of, of being Democrat or supporting of Obama. 50% not supporting Obama. That's one interpretation. The second interpretation is that America is divided in half of those who support Obama and Democrats and half of those not supporting Obama or Democrats. And among those who support Obama, 100% Support. They have no ambiguity in their support. And they're, they're quite homogeneous in their support. There is no ambiguity. And in, among those who don't support other half, there's 100% supportive. Of course, there's an infinite number of possibilities of mixture models or mix. Um, so there are, there are different possibilities. So in this paper, we're going to take this alternative. We assume population is heterogeneous from one person to another. But each person has its own unique threshold. So if it meets your threshold, you prefer that neighborhood. You, some, some may prefer 10%, some may prefer 20%, some may prefer 50%. Each individual has different thresholds, but the threshold is dichotomous for the same individual. Okay, So that is our approach. And of, of course, identifications with proofs two perspectives is not empirically possible. There are infinite number of possibilities. So reality is likely somewhere in between. So we do not claim that a heterogeneous interpretation is necessarily correct. It might be on the extreme, but I will show you evidence in support of a heterogeneity perspective. So let me give you the evidence for the heterogeneity view. The data fit the Gutman scale remarkably well. I'm going to review uh, Gutman scale for you in a minute. You have five items, yes or no. So you have two by two by two by two by two. There are 32 combinations in a multi-dimensional space. So you have 32 possibilities. But if you use five class Gutman scale, you actually can account for 96% of cases, this is for Detroit, similarly for other, uh, very high percentage for other three cities as well. And the only 4% are unclassifiable uh, uh, out of the um, most combinations uh, do not conform, uh, very, very few uh, percentage of cases do not conform to government scale. I'm going to show you what I mean by government scale uh, uh, in case you don't know. So we use the upper limits of racial composition associated with the government scale and each class as tolerance level for both races to illustrate the importance of heterogeneity. Let me show you government scale. 
This says yes to all white neighborhood, but no, 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 no. If they say no here, then they say no there. If they don't tolerate the one black, they will not tolerate two or three or any more blacks. And that, that's based on intensity of scale. So government scale uses patterns of intensity. So you cannot say, I accept here, I accept here, but I'm not accepting here. Because you already, if you do not accept any black, one black will not accept three black neighborhoods or five black neighborhoods. So this is common scale. So this is least tolerant of blacks. This is a last second, third, fourth, and fifth. And this class is tolerant of majority blacks. And we assume they are, they are, they are indifferent to racial composition. And then you have the residual class, that's about 4% uh, to 6% in Boston that do not conform to government scale. They just give you uh, numbers that do not conform this clear pattern. Are we okay with government scale? So to me, and my co-author Sean, this is good evidence of heterogeneous thresholds because they conform to government scale. They, Items were designed as government scale, but were not used by Brooke and Mayer in terms of government scale. And we think th this should be used as government scale, with increasing intensity of other race, blacks for whites. Okay, are we okay? Okay. So this is the kind of insight we used in our simulation. We think that the population is divided into distinct classes, each of them with a different level of threshold of racial tolerance. So we did our simulation. Six latent classes with differing thresholds of racial tolerance, and within each class we assume homogeneous tolerance. We trace long-term trajectories and compare to Brooke and Mayer's results. We also examine selection of population classes due to uh, segregation dynamics, where they go. And this is our main result. Brooke and Mayer model will predict the long-term a high level of segregation than our model of heterogeneous classes. And that's the first important finding. So we do see lower level segregation compared to Brook and Mayer homogeneity model. We also want to see selection dynamics. As segregation increases, we also see we start out with no selection. So five classes are randomly distributed into all neighborhoods. As segregation goes up, increases, then Whites are sorted into neighborhoods to which they're comfortable with or there is equilibrium or selection of one's preference with respect to neighborhood conditions. So this is uh, five, class five individuals. Those are most tolerant of blacks. They start off distributed evenly in all neighborhoods. But over time, what will happen is they are more likely to be in type 5 neighborhoods with high percentage of, of, of blacks. So individuals, not only individuals are heterogeneous, but over time they're likely to be sorted into different neighborhoods. You got intolerant of blacks, you're not going to live with black, uh, heavily black neighborhoods in the long term. You're going to leave 
neighborhoods where there is a substantial proportion of, of blacks. If you're tolerant of blacks, you're going to live in uh, neighborhoods with blacks. So that's basically is the dynamics of selection. Uh, I only have five, uh, uh, ten minutes, so let me uh, speed up and, and finish uh, some extensions. So, so far, you got the main message. Heterogeneity matters. But in, in the first analysis, we assumed categorical classes. So broadly speaking, there's a heterogeneity across classes, but there is no individual level heterogeneity. So in our extension, we actually did um, uh, extrapolation um, through our uh, measurement so that we connect 0% tolerance to 100% tolerance by uh, imposing a continuous function uh, to the earlier data, survey data. If we do that, we see a less pronounced difference between Broca-Mears homogeneity model and our heterogeneity model. One interpretation of this is that earlier we saw a larger difference, a lower level of segregation in the long term when we assumed a categorical heterogeneous function. And the reason we have a lower level is because we assume the relatively sizable class of racial, complete racial tolerance. So we assume there's one class, one group of individuals who are indifferent to racial composition of neighborhood. And that, that, that is a discrete, that is the, what the discrete uh, approach, categorical approach will give you, is to give you a class of individuals with tolerance, complete tolerance. Yeah, if we're under the continuous heterogeneity model, we also see uh, sorting. This is a correlation up to 6%. This is a correlation of individual level heterogeneity or tolerance and the neighborhood racial composition of proportional blacks. So if you do simple correlation, correlation starts with zero, then you just do the feedback. You do the feedback shilling or broken mirror thing, the sorting will go up, the correlation measuring sorting will go up to 0.6. Okay, um, what about if they are heterogeneous, if individuals are heterogeneous, can we predict their heterogeneity in preference function from their social attributes? We know this is survey data, we know a lot about those individuals. So the next natural question is, that can we use social attributes to help us predict their uh, uh, heterogeneity in uh, um, uh, neighborhood uh, preference function. If so, what are the social determinants? Again, we use Matsui data. We use order the logic model. Why order the logic? Because uh, we have classes that are ordered um, according to government scale. We ignore unclassifiable cases because they don't give us information about uh, their tolerance. And if we do that for the uh, for cities, uh, we can see some basic patterns that are that are not surprising. For example, years of education, the higher classes, racial more tolerance. So education is associated with more tolerance, and being married is associated with less tolerance. So being married is uh, associated with less tolerance. Age is associated with less tolerance, so young people are more tolerant, and so on. The general pattern is in the direction of uh, our expectation. 
So we can predate heterogeneity to some extent from their social uh, attributes. Finally, this is the last analysis I want to present, is that if, if there is a heterogeneity in preference, if preference, heterogeneity in preference, can be predicted from their social attributes, then is the association between we kind of underlying preference on the one hand and their racial attitudes in general on the other hand. So you think of racial prejudice, okay? Many whites in America have prejudice against blacks. Are the two linked? Can we see some evidence of that? So in, on the data, we, from the data, we extracted four measures of racial kind of prejudice. Uh, so those are whites ratings of blacks. The first is blacks are poor, rating from zero to seven. Second is blacks are not intelligent. They are not intelligent. Uh, again, from one to seven. And they depend on welfare. Uh, uh, and also from uh, scales from one to seven. And they're difficult to get along. Blacks are difficult to get along. And also from one to seven. But of course, it's not drastic from one to seven. This is the most tolerant of blacks. And then you see they're less prejudiced in terms of economic well-being, in terms of uh, poor intelligence, and in terms of uh, dependency on, on government support, welfare dependency, and in terms of difficulty to get along. So the, the least tolerant of blacks show highest level of racial stereotype of prejudice against blacks. So this is again attitudinal data that show that uh, preference heterogeneity in some ways is associated with racial attitudes towards blacks. Okay, let me conclude. Severe heterogeneity exists in neighborhood preference. That's the main, main conclusion that differs from broken male model. Two, the heterogeneity in neighborhood preference leads to a lower level of racial segregation in the long run. The second conclusion is that heterogeneity matters. It's not just methodological uh, gain. The, the methodological uh, consideration of heterogeneity has social consequences. Some people uh, are long, more tolerant, and if you have a larger proportion of those who are more tolerant, you will not see very high level of segregation. You will see some kind of stabilization of segregation because not everyone behaves the same way, will respond to neighborhood change in the same way. In certain model, it will lead to complete segregation. On the homogeneity model, it could lead to complete segregation. Why? Because, because everybody uh, uh, would not want to live in a neighborhood of minority, then everybody will move out. But in reality, we do know there are the whites who live with blacks. They do not respond the same way. And why is that? That is because of heterogeneity in preference function. That Schilling model was too simplistic, assuming everyone will respond in the same way. I'm not wanting to be a minority in the neighborhood. So it has consequences. Third, the heterogeneity in neighborhood preference can be interpreted as reflecting white racial prejudice against blacks. So it's not in isolation of their general racial attitudes. It's indicative, it is indicative of their racial attitude towards blacks. If they don't like blacks, 
they would not want to live in a neighborhood with a high concentration of blacks. So it has a, a social significance. There are two other findings. One, when neighborhood preference is heterogeneous, so individuals have different threshold functions, segregation dynamics produces selection. And this selection is often what economists sometimes uh, take as a selection. People are sorted into situations they like. So that we see a sorting mechanism at place. They are sorted or selected uh, into neighborhood that suits their type. So you have individual preference and neighborhood conditions, and they are, they are sorted together in the long term. And second, uh, similar conclusions hold true whether we conceptualize population heterogeneity of preference either as distinct classes or as a continuous distribution. Even though with continuous distribution, the difference between homogeneity model and heterogeneity model is smaller. I will stop here. Thank you. <laughs>